0: When we say evolution, what usually comes to mind is biological evolution, the history of species diversity. I get the sense that biology as a science is uh, ripe now for a revolution, like the transformation that occurred in physics in the last century with the uh, discovery of quantum mechanics, these revelations regarding the bizarre nature of subatomic waves and particles. And the big change in geology the century before that, when the study of rocks proved that the Earth is, not thousands, but millions, in fact, billions of years old. I think it's gonna be really interesting what happens in the life sciences in our time to come. Darwin's big idea of evolution as natural selection had implications for religion. And no religion, not even Buddhism, really likes the theory. Not for Buddhists, because it refutes the creation myth. Uh, Other religions do have a problem with that. Orthodox Christians don't like that the book of Genesis uh, can't be reconciled with millions of years of history. And uh, the process of evolution is incompatible with the idea of a grand design. Uh, Most religions regard our kind, our tribe as uh, separate. And of a distinct origin, and of being essentially different, and typically then also of greater value, and maybe entitled to be in power over everything and everybody else. But Darwin said that we're of nature, that the uh, uh, processes of natural selection, and that we descended from apes. He discovered this by careful observation of the subtle diversity of subspecies and their adaptation to the environment. They saw the mechanism for change initiated by randomly occurring mutations. When mutation resulted in an advantage to an individual in that environment, the genes were passed on so that the adaptation could be perpetuated, possibly eventually resulting in the emergence of an entirely new species. And so we have an ancestral tree with apes and man descending from simpler and more primitive creatures all the way back to single cell organisms. Now we know this is what happened. We know it took about 4.3 billion years on this planet that came into being about 4.6 billion years ago. Homo sapiens emerged a couple hundred thousand years ago, barely the blink of an eye, that is if there was an eye who was watching the show. And the story that we are in nature and of nature not above it or separate from it, is also, in the last nano-blink, a story of this eye that has conquered and now utterly dominates nature. But, of course, the show ain't over. Nature has yet to sing. But you think be good with this, with Darwin's theory of natural selection? We're nature lovers, right? And we're relatively science-friendly, generally. So the theory connects life forms and points to a deeper unity. All good. Not to mention that we are way more interested in the relief of suffering than in creation stories generally. But we do have a problem with this thing about randomness. Most devout Buddhists believe in uh, karma, that karma conditions all change, the law of cause and effect, applied interdependence. And that's not randomness. Too much randomness, and we worry that maybe our actions don't mean anything. At least not further than selfish pleasure. That's nihilism. Now, nihilism is not an uncommon uh, way to go in our hyper capitalistic consumer society, but Buddhism's not nihilistic. We have karma, and of course we have ethics and upholding values like loving kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. So, therefore, does belief in karma and interdependence mean that we should reject natural selection and evolution too? I don't think so. I think there's a middle path here between the apparent chaos of chance and the doctrine that says that things are directly determined by cosmic justice. It's interesting, too, how since Darwin, Darwin, randomness has come up short in the explanation of the big picture, which is the evolution of the entire universe. In the century after Darwin's theory was published, in the 20th century, we've come into huge knowledge of the origins of non-sentient beings, planets, stars, galaxies, and matter itself. The whole universe theres a new creation story, and what happened is an amazing story. That's maybe, I wasn't planning this, I'm going to read a bit from, uh, I was going to do this later, but I'm actually going to jump to it now. This is from uh, a, a thing called The, the Universe Story, uh, and this is co-written by Thomas Berry, a theologian, philosopher of religion, and Brian Swim, a cosmologist. So they got together and and wrote a new creation story. Here's how it starts. 15 billion years ago, in a great flash, the universe flared forth into being. In each drop of existence, a primordial energy blazed with an intensity never to be equaled again. Thick with its power, the universe billet out in every direction so that the elementary particles could stabilize enabling the first atomic beings of hydrogen and helium to emerge. After a million turbulent years, the frenzied particles calmed themselves enough for the primeval fireball to dissolve into a great scattering, with all the atoms soaring away from each other into the dark cosmic skies opening up in the beginning time. A billion years of uninterrupted night enabled the universe to prepare itself for the next macrocosmic transfiguration. In the depths of its silence, the universe shuddered with the immense creativity necessary to fashion the galaxies. The Andromeda Galaxy, the Virgo Cluster of Galaxies, Pegasus, Fornax, the Magellanic Clouds, M33, the Coma Cluster, Sculptor, the Hercules Cluster, as well as our own Milky Way Galaxy. One hundred billion galaxies in all. These gigantic structures pinwheeled through the emptiness of space and swept up all the hydrogen and helium into self-organizing systems and clusters of systems and clusters of clusters of systems. Each galaxy presented its unique form to the universe. Each contained its own internal dynamics. Each brought forth from its materials billions upon billions of primal stars. Every morning I step outside on the, on the deck behind my home and I... Look up into the sky. It's usually before dawn, and if it's really clear, I can see a, a little smudge in the belt of the constellation Orion, the belt of Orion, which is apparently a nursery of stars. And I go, oh, wow, stars being born. Uh, this random process that we attribute to natural selection doesn't really explain what happened. It now seems that the events of this grand cosmic history must have been aimed at because there hasn't been enough time for what's here to have come into being by accident as random collisions in an otherwise indifferent universe. Even if we had a hundred times, the now we know it's 14.72 billion years since time started, The birth of suns and galaxies, for example, the emergence of the elements, the amino acids that are the molecular building blocks of life in which for sure exists throughout the Milky Way and probably everywhere. In the simplest living cell, there are over a million moving parts. According to the laws of probability, the likelihood of atoms bouncing around, forming up into molecules, and then somehow coming together in such an assemblage, the single cell, the odds of this happening would be the same if a tornado hit a junkyard and left the 747 on the runway, ready for takeoff. Another way of expressing it that the way that use is to describe a lottery ticket that has to have the winning numbers, and that's a sequence of not six or seven numbers, but as many as in a string of digits so long that it goes to the moon and back. <laughs> so I just apparently get a kick out of never saying never, right, but it's never, the fact is that Before there was life, there had to be something aiming for it. Before there was the sun, there had to be something aiming for it. And before there was the galaxy, there had to be something aiming for it. It's on this issue of randomness that Einstein had a huge problem with quantum mechanics. Probabilities are key to quantum, and and yet they are totally counterintuitive. Although, also the principal factor in how quantum is used for engineering. Einstein famously said, God does not play dice with the universe. It's been said that Einstein's spiritual bias against irrationality limited his ability to accept the the very provable yet totally illogical behavior of subatomic elements. But a century later, now looking at life science, I wonder if we can view all this in a new and spiritual light, illuminated by Buddhism's ancient wisdom. I was a musician when I was young. I was a guitarist. I played all the time, all day and every day for about 10 years. And then I went to university I played and talked my way into university despite I'd missed high school entirely. But I wanted to be a composer and that was my first degree. I got a degree in, in music composition. Now in these olden times, uh, we were all avant-garde. It's a funny thing to say, in olden times we were avant-garde. But sure, we were using moog synthesizers and we were making electronic music, expanding the soundscape and structures of music, experimenting with new ways that uh, domesticated noise. I was right in there for anything sort of wild and weird and unusual, anything unconventional. And an idea that attracted me was called aleatoric music. That's music that uses chance elements in the compositional process. The American composer John Cage was my guru. Uh, Cage was also a very inspired American pioneer of Buddhism, as a matter of fact. Uh, That's another story. It would be a good Dharma talk, I think. Uh, One of his most famous pieces is called 433. 4 minutes and 33 seconds of silence. Now, we'd be good at that here, right? I mean, we're virtuosi at silence. We go a whole five days, so that'd be nothing for us. We should probably play that sometimes. <laughs> but uh, who's performing the piece, you know? If not us, it doesn't matter. I-, I remember hearing him talk about it, uh, uh, hearing him talk about aleatory processes in the early 70s, and he was saying about one composition. He was sitting at his desk, and he's facing a blank page of music paper, and there's a five-line staff, you know, all blank, and he looks out his window and he notices the, the telephone lines. There's a set of five, and his birds are landing, <laughs> taking off one of the telephone lines, right? And so he thought, okay, let the birds be notes, and let them create the music. So he notated their changing presence, and a new piece of music was born. Cage said that whenever he was asked about self-expression, he always felt he'd been misunderstood generally. He said what he was doing was not about self-expression, it was about self-adjustment. I thought at the time he was referring to adjusting to the situation, to the moment, but now I think he was talking about non-self or not-self more generally, Anatta. As an artist, though, more interested in letting go of the self than expressing the self. And really, I mean, like maybe creativity is a channel that we plug into, a universal energy source instead of like a personal battery pack that we have? Creativity from something other than the self, something much greater. Uh, that inspires curiosity, I think. Really. Is there a middle path, I'm asking, between this randomness and pure chance on the one hand, and a karmic law of cause and effect on the other? What if Creativity loves structures and constraints. Creativity loves to play in forms. Middle paths are generally not a compromise between two opposing extremes. The middle path is more like a portal, a lens, and it may be uncovered midway between what appears like opposites, and it may be suchly beholden to that continuum But it turns out to be something different entirely. An opening of consciousness. Finding the middle path always feels like that, I think. First, we imagine something between opposites, as if a balancing point, a compromise under tension. But then, when you jump in, you uncover a new reality that embraces the whole thing in a new way. Einstein himself said that you don't solve a problem using the same consciousness that discovered the problem. So I wonder, could this middle path between karma and chance be a lens illuminating cosmic, universal creativity? What if we looked at the universe as if it were a piece of music, creative and playful? What if it isn't a game with God throwing the dice, like what worried Einstein, But everything was the dice, including gods, Buddhas, and all of us, absolutely everything. What was going on here was play all the time, all play. What if this dance included our values and our ethics too, shooting through space and time on an evolutionary arrow of progress, spiritual progress? What if it was fueled by conflict, and its composition included a big measure of suffering? For the last 10 years, I've been a mediator and circle keeper, and I deal with conflict. I apply peacemaking practices with my colleagues to people's conflicts in their communities, in their families, their relationships. It seems to me that conflict is just part of life. It's everywhere, like suffering. And like suffering, it provides an energy and motivation for transformation. Uh, my all time favorite evolutionary scientist is a guy named Edward O. Wilson. He's a longtime Harvard professor, he's a southern gentleman, old guy, naturalist. Passionate defender of biodiversity and ecosystems, unquestionably E.O. Wilson is the world's greatest expert on ants. He defines the process of evolution as stemming from random mutation. He's orthodox a scientist that way, but he frames it in a social and not just reproductive uh, contexts. Culture also evolves. This is a bit controversial. That we're not just talking about selfish genes, about kinship, even, but about groups and even cultural contexts, He doesn't pull his punches. He sounds like a Southern gentleman, but he writes quite boldly. For instance, the title of his short book, The Meaning of Human Existence, he speculates here on the evolutionary origins of human nature, specifically our conflicted, suffering nature. Probably, he says, a conflict ensued between individual-level selection with individuals competing with other individuals in the same group on the one side, and group level selection with competition among groups on the other side. The latter promoted altruism and cooperation among group members. It led to innate group-wide morality and the sense of conscience and honor. He goes on to say that the competition between the two forces can be succinctly expressed as follows. Within groups, selfish individuals beat unselfish altruistic individuals. But groups of altruists beat groups of selfish individuals. Within groups, selfish people get on top. But groups of unselfish people are successful over groups of selfish people. Risking oversimplification, he says, individual selection promoted sin, group selection promoted virtue. He describes this as a fundamental aspect of our nature, this human conflict. Ants and bees do not debate within themselves whether to sacrifice their individual lives for the greater good of the colony. Just do it. Many, most sentient beings go the other way. They act selfishly, like sharks feeding, showing their prey no mercy. Wilson believed that our fundamentally conflicted self should be seen not as a fault, as some original sin that gave us our rotten, at the core nature, but rather as something we need to recognize and understand because the true nature is the wellspring of creativity, and as such, a sacred trust. Our inner debate is our source of freedom, freedom to suffer, for sure, but to suffer not just more, but from now on, to suffer more wisely. Nice trick. There is a new theory of evolution which sees the whole universe as intentional, as an action, the story, the ultimate story. I read from Thomas Berry, he called it the universe story. Uh, Berry is like my favorite evolution philosopher. I've read all his books. He was one of the inspirations to the deep ecology movement of the last century. He is a theologian and a professor of the philosophy of religion, he's dead now. Some people call him a geologian, as opposed to a theologian, because he believes so much in the earth, the planet, and in the universe. So the story that he depicts, that he inspires, is the story of the progress of the universe in entirety a cosmic evolutionary progress that is generative of everything. I'd like to talk about this theory about cosmogenesis, about differentiation, autopoiesis, and communion. Uh, I don't have time, Uh, another time, next time. It just goes on, you know. It's very exciting, it's very exciting science. Uh, Maybe I'll just read a little more. Uh, of the beginning of the world, of the universe. We got to the beginning of billions and billions of primal stars. The most brilliant stars rushed through their natural sequence of transformations and exploded in colossal supernovas that matched a billion stars in luminosity and spewed stellar materials throughout the galaxy. New stars formed out of the materials that had been created, in billion-year processes of stellar nucleosynthesis. Second generation stars were richer in potentiality and more complex in internal structure because the primal stars had created the elemental beings of carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, molybdenum, calcium, magnesium, and all the other hundreds of elements. Do you know that we are composed more of stardust than of the basic and commonest materials on Earth? That we are more closely related to stars than we are to the fundamental materials of this planet? Some five billion years after the beginning of time, the star Tiamat emerged in our spiral galaxy. Tiamat knit together wonders in its fiery belly and then sacrificed itself, carving its body up into a supernova explosion that dispersed this new elemental power in all directions so that the adventure might deepen. Five billion years ago, after the universe had expanded and developed for 10 billion years, our Milky Way galaxy shot peacefully drifting cloud of Tiamat's remnants into giving birth to 10,000 new stars. Some of these turned out to be diminutive brown dwarf stars. Others became blue supergiants that quickly flashed into the incandescence of new supernovas. Others became stable, long-burning yellow stars, and still others became slumbering red stars. The universe, insisting upon diversity, also brought forth from this floating cloud of elements our own star, the sun. Once granted existence, the Sun showed its self-organizing ability, blasting off nearly all the clouds of elements yet hovering above it and spinning the rest into a multi-band disk of matter, out of which arose the bonded system of Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and Pluto. The universe story is a story, right? It's a myth. Uh, And it satisfies the need that people have, an evolved need for a creation story. In place of the old myths of the separate religions and cultures, this is a new epic composed of observable and verifiable knowledge. I hope that the science will inspire whatever religion eventually emerges in globalization, a big bang and bottom-up religion for a coming ecozoic era. This science story conveys a prophecy of transformation, the evolution of our species, from the old homo sapiens who objectified the world, and extracted what we wanted from it, regardless of the harm and suffering we caused, into a new human being, beings, being in communion with our sister and brother subjects, entirely and abundantly co-creating and continually evolving this, our shared universe. And we could be delighted in such good company, as in being here this morning, for which I am, again, very grateful, for sure, grateful for future religion, and this morning for our shared spiritual practice, I'm grateful for science and music and poetry, music and poetry, and here's a poem by T.S. Eliot, which he wrote in London during the Second World War when his city was being bombed. It's a short excerpt from The Four Quartets. Or music, music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all. You are the music while the music lasts. Hints and guesses. These are all just hints and guesses, and the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. Atoms need physicists to become aware of themselves. Physicists and cosmologists and whatever knowledgeable types come along in the future are what atoms and the universe have in mind, and have had in mind all along. This universe needs you and me too, or it wouldn't be this universe, Without each and every one of us, something would not be understandable, would not be able to evolve in a certain real and beautiful way.